0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. This summer, we are in a series of pro- in Proverbs. We feel like it's really important to, during a portion of every summer, turn our attention to either the Proverbs or the Psalms. And as I've mentioned every single week in this series, we do that because um, the Psalms give us a whole range of emotions of how to engage with God, uh, that there are Psalms that are all about joy and celebration, and that's good, and it's easy to praise God when life is going great, and we have all kinds of reasons for joy and celebration. Uh, what becomes more difficult is how do we engage with God, uh, how do we ha- express our faith when life uh, seems to be crumbling all around us, and we have those, those, that range of emotion in the Psalms. Uh, And so occasionally, during the summer, we turn our attention to the Psalms. Uh, But this summer, we've chosen to focus in on the Proverbs. Uh, We feel like the Proverbs are so important because they are uh, the wisdom of God, uh, that they, they give us good and godly wisdom for how to live our lives. And the truth is, we need good and godly wisdom. In fact, Proverbs is a part of a biblical genre called wisdom literature. And as we've been talking about throughout this series, uh, I think we need to understand that wisdom is different than intelligence. Uh, Intelligence is just all about the ability to sort of understand and assimilate information, uh, while wisdom is the ability to understand and discern truth. And so when we turn to the Proverbs, what, we, what we're looking at is not information about God, not information about ourselves, or not even necessarily information about life. What we're reading when we read the Proverbs is, is truth about God, truth about ourselves, and, and a description of the ways in which life generally works. Uh, so the Proverbs are giving us wisdom, they're giving us truth, about ourselves, about God, and about how life generally works. Now for this reason, we cannot go to the Proverbs and read them as though they're promises. Uh, So it's really important for you to understand that as we study the Proverbs, what we're reading are not the promises of God. We're not sort of reading these things that this is always in fact the case what we're reading is wisdom about how life generally works. And, and what we find out in sort of, if you read the first 10 chapters of Proverbs, they, they, they read like a narrative, like any kind of normal biblical book would. Once you get to chapter 11 in Proverbs, what you get are just these staccato, short little sayings that seem totally disconnected from one another. But in the first 10 chapters, the, the recurring theme over and over and over again is the author is comparing the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And what the overwhelming point seems to be is that if you follow the way uh, of wisdom, then certain things will go well for you. Now, that doesn't mean that life will be a piece of cake or a cakewalk, but it means that if you follow good and godly wisdom, uh, then generally speaking, uh, things are going to go pretty well for you. But, ra- but if you follow the opposite road, which is the way of folly or the opposite of wisdom, uh, then generally speaking, things are going to go really rough. And the reason is because... Uh, we, we live with the consequences of our actions, right? Uh, we live every day in the consequences of our choices. Now, of course, sometimes difficulty comes to us that we didn't choose, we had nothing to do with. Uh, sometimes someone makes a choice that we uh, are, the, are the victim of. Uh, but what, what Proverbs is calling us to is, is to a journey with wisdom. It's calling us to a journey uh, with wisdom. And uh, today... Uh, Proverbs seven is no different. Um, Proverbs seven uh, is is pretty in your face. Um, in fact, I want to read the entire proverb uh, it's, i think it 's twenty seven verses, something like that. Uh, but I want to read it to us because it paints uh, it, paint, it basically tells a story uh, that paints a a, a picture, uh, and depending on how you look at it, it can be a pretty bleak picture. Uh, but uh, would you follow along with me as I read Proverbs chapter seven? Uh, If you have uh, your devices, you can click there. If you have a Bible, uh, there should be one somewhere in the rows in front of you. Uh, And then it'll also be up on the screen. Uh, But follow along with me as I read uh, the entirety of Proverbs uh, chapter 7. It says this. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. And they will keep you then from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. For at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice, and I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. And then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. For she is unruly and defiant, her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, and at every corner she lurks. Then she took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you, I looked for you, and I have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deeply of love until morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey, and he took his purse filled with money, and he will not be home until full moon. With persuasive words she led him astray, and she seduced him with her smooth talk. And all at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, until an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. So now then, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart churn to her ways or stray into her paths. For many are the victims that she has brought down, Uh, Her slain are the mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. I told you, it didn't pull any punches. (laughs) Proverbs 7, um, again, returns to this theme of, of sexuality and the way of the wayward woman. Uh, if you're keeping track or if you're keeping score, uh, this is the third time now that this, this particular theme uh, is addressed in just the first seven chapters of Proverbs. Uh, you read it in all of Proverbs chapter 5, which we looked at last summer. Uh, you get a little bit of a reprieve in the first half of Proverbs 6. Uh, he returns to the theme in the later half of Proverbs 6, and then now all of Proverbs 7 is dedicated once again to this theme. Uh, it appears that getting the point across, or getting his point across about sexuality, is very important to the writer of the proverb. And I would say to you that I think you don't need a lot of commentary on this passage, right? I mean, the point is very in your face and very clear on face value. The point seems to be that the way of the wayward woman leads to destruction and is extremely dangerous. Now, as we've talked about, the the way the wayward woman is um, referred to uh, in Proverbs six as being analogous to uh, your neighbor's wife uh, when he, when it's a warning against adultery. Um, then in Proverbs chapter five, he again says this wayward woman, and, and we've come to learn to understand that the wayward woman is uh, is is a word picture of understanding any sort of sinful sexuality or any kind of sexuality that is wrongly directed. Uh, And so we shouldn't understand it in such a specific context except to say that the wayward woman could very easily be images that we're looking at, becoming emotionally or physically connected to someone other than your spouse, or any other wide range of of misdirected sexuality. Uh, And and this appears to be a very, very big deal, right? It's almost as if the point cannot be overemphasized. The Proverbs returns to this again and again and again. And if you were to read them all just in one, kind of one sitting, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, uh, you, you might be tempted to say, good night, dude, I got it, relax, right? Uh, I, I get your point. Um, but what the, 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 the real push of the text is the point cannot be overemphasized. Wisdom says to stay away from sexual sin because it is extremely dangerous. Now, Now let's be clear about something. Uh, sin is sin. Uh, there are no levels of sin. There is no hierarchy of sin. Uh, th- there is only brokenness of which all of us are in that camp and all of us are in need of a Savior. Uh, in fact, I would, I would say not we're, ju- we're not just need, in the need of a Savior, but we are, in fact, in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Sin is sin. All of us need the Savior. And so we shouldn't Uh, We shouldn't sort of create these these hierarchy of of sin in our mind. Sin is sin is sin. And yet, at the very same time, I want to say, yes, sin is sin, and there are no levels of sin. But there are, however, levels of consequences of sin. Uh, That is to say that some acts of sin carry much much deeper consequences than others. And so while we might say, okay, sin is sin, That there's no level of sin, there's no hierarchy of sin, we are all broken and in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, but at the very same time, we need to recognize that the consequences of sin are different. Are you with me? Uh, that, that while all sin may be equal, not all sin carries the same level of consequence in our life. For example, the consequences of adultery are going to be uh, far different than the consequences of an ungrateful attitude, equally sinful but far different in their consequences in our life and far different in how those will play out in our lives. And and, and so consequences uh, and living with the consequences of our sin, um, well, we just live with different consequences, even though all of us are broken in need of a Savior. Uh, Can I take a side note here and just say to parents, uh, parents, I I think this is really important for, for us to understand uh, and this is, in fact, why we need to allow our children to experience natural consequences when the consequences are small. Uh, be, because when you're, when you're five and you have an ungrateful attitude, uh, that is sin nonetheless. And, it, and, and every parent, trust me, believes in original sin. <laughs> there is no parent on the planet that was like, you know, this original sin, I don't think that's really the case. Um, so... So we see sort of the the sinful nature coming out in our kids, and it could be in all all variety of things, but when they're small, let's be honest, the consequences are pretty small. Uh, And it's really important when the consequences are small to allow those consequences to play out in their life. Because if they don't, if we come in as parents and we're always rescuing them and we're just swooping in and, and rescuing them from the consequences, then guess what? their heart doesn't change, they don't learn the consequences, and then they go off to college and they start living on their own and they make some of their own choices where the consequences are much, much bigger. Are you with me, parents? Uh, And I think too many kids sort of grow up having parents rescue them all the time, rarely connecting their choices to consequences. But by that time, the consequences can be huge because the point is... Sin is sin, but the consequences of sin are different. Uh, and, and so we need to recognize that. And so we might ask the question, well, what is the big deal then about talking about sexuality and sexual sin over and over and over again at the beginning of Proverbs? Well, I think that returning to this theme over and again the writer of Proverbs is making this a really big deal out of this because he wants to say that in this particular area, the consequences of sin are, are huge. I mean, the, the consequences are huge. And, and so, once again, though, what I want to say to you is that sexual sin is used to illustrate a larger point. One of the things that we've tried to do throughout the series in Proverbs is say, okay, here's what it says on, on, on face value, right? Uh, on just level one, on the surface, this is what the proverb says. And uh, we could sort of get some understanding of that. We can gain some wisdom from that. Uh, but the beauty of God's word is that oftentimes there's a second level or a third level of wisdom. And during this series in Proverbs, we've been trying to get to the second and third level of wisdom, to, to try to capture the, the larger wisdom that is being taught. And, and I believe that there's a larger piece of wisdom that God offers us, even in this very specific and pointed story about a young man who wanders in and then is caught up in uh, the the lure of the wayward woman. Uh, And I believe that God's wisdom is this, and this is what he wants to say to us this morning. Earthly pleasures outside of their God honoring contexts are destructive. That's the larger piece of wisdom that God wants to offer us today earthly pleasures outside of their God-honoring context are, in fact, destructive. And sex becomes a great example of this, of this kind of wisdom, because sex is a great gift from God, right, that is given to allow us to experience intimacy with our spouse. And if you were to read Proverbs 5 and then 6 and then 7, you might really be tempted to say, I don't think this is a good idea at all. To which God would say, ah, no, you missed it. No, this is a great idea in the right context. (laughs) We can laugh about this. It's okay. Let's release a little bit of tension in the room. (laughs) Man, you guys are uptight today. (laughs) You see, this this act builds intimacy. It solidifies commitment. It declares to your spouse, I am, in fact, completely, 100% yours. However, outside of the context of marriage, this very same act becomes really, really destructive and has all sorts of negative consequences. Now, I've said this before, but I think it bears saying again, sex becomes destructive outside of marriage because we are asking the act of sex to do something it simply cannot do and was never intended to do. For example, if we are looking to this act to create love, it cannot do that. It, it does not create love. It only expresses love. It does not create commitment, right? So if I, uh, if I just do what he wants me to do, even though we're not married, then I'll be sure that he's gonna give me a ring and we'll be lifelong uh, partners, spouse. Doesn't work. Doesn't work that way. Uh, if you are asking this, uh, this particular act to end loneliness, it doesn't work. Uh, in, in fact, outside of the context of marriage, it probably will tend to make you more lonely. And sex cannot do these things because it simply cannot be reduced enough to accomplish these things. Right? It, is, it isn't because uh, sex is, isn't powerful enough, it's because... It is so powerful that it has to be contained into its proper God-honoring context for it to do its work. And and sex builds intimacy, it expresses commitment, it declares to your spouse, I am completely yours. In other words, it is meant to to be an expression of love and commitment that is already there. Sex is the culmination of covenant. It is not the seed on, on which commitment is grown. Does that make sense? It is the culmination of covenant. It is not the seed upon which commitment is grown. And so if you ask the sexual act to do something that it isn't meant to do, you are taking it out of its God-honoring context and it can create all kinds of trouble. But the point, again, is not so much just about this in particular. The point is, in fact, that any kind of earthly pleasure, anything that is a good gift from God, but you you take it out of its context, then it has all sorts of power to be destructive. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Money. Money is a good gift from God. Would you agree? (laughs) Five of you agree. That's good. Money is a good gift from God. Uh, but it must be handled in God-honoring ways or it will become a curse instead of a blessing. Uh, in, in fact, you can, take, you can take a pile of money and just give it to someone. You can just bless someone with, with money that will end all their trouble. But if I promise you, if they don't know how to handle that, or if they don't manage that money in God-honoring ways, that money will ruin them. Because guess what? Money is very unique because it tends to take on the character of its owner. And so if you give a ton of money to someone who doesn't have the character to manage it in ways that honor God, that money will absolutely ruin that person. And I would guess that there's a whole list of kids who grew up rich that could, be, that could illustrate this point. And whether they got famous, whether they never became famous, it doesn't matter. There's a laundry list of people in our country that had tons and tons of money, but it ended up being their downfall because they don't manage it well. And so money is this good gift from God, but taken out of its God-honoring context can be absolutely destructive in our lives. Uh, Food. We need food. Food is a good gift from God, right? (laughs) We can and we should enjoy all kinds of food, but abusing food can lead to all kinds of trouble. Alcohol, while not inherently sinful, has potential for destruction if not consumed in ways and in quantities that honor God as the Lord of your life. Sports and entertainment, these are good things. They are meant to be enjoyed, right? However, if the content that we are entertained by is so contrary to the ways of God, we are in danger of having our own ways of thinking shaped negatively and impacted by that. So I'm not telling you what you can and cannot watch. I'm simply asking you to have some level of discernment when it comes to your entertainment and begin to say, is, is what I'm using, what I'm participating in as entertainment, am I being shaped by that in a way that is contrary to? to God? And if the answer is yes, then, then maybe we should not watch that anymore. And that's a lot easier than saying, don't watch rated R movies. Right? Or maybe it's a lot harder, actually. I mean, It's, it's one way to just say, okay, here's, here's a line in the sand, let's draw it, and let's do that, and then say, okay, now we're, gonna, we're just going to say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, but you can do that, you can not do that, and you can do that. That sounds a lot like legalism. And God never calls us to that, but God does call us to a point of discernment uh, in, in saying that entertainment is a good and godly gift meant to be enjoyed, but let's be careful because if we take that out of our God-honoring context, it can be destructive in our lives. Sports is another one that I said. Sports are, are great. Many of you know that I'm not uh, a, a, a crazy sports fan, although I am becoming a Royals fan. I'm, I'm recapturing my childhood um, and becoming a Royals fan. Um, and I was a Royals fan before they were good, okay? And I was a Royals fan previous to 1985 when they won the World Series and previous to last year when they won the World Series. Uh, but there's a big portion of my life where I just uh, lost track of sports, um, except for disc golf. And then, yes, it's a sport. Um, and, then, and then T-Mobile. Yeah, T-Mobile. Anybody? Oh, no one. Okay, okay. Um, Then T-Mobile gave me a one-year subscription to MLB.tv, and I can watch Royals games whenever I want. And it has recaptured, rekindled this love for sports in my life. Anyway, so uh, sports are good, and they're great, and they're a good gift from God. But really, they can become so out of balance in our lives that our consumption or our participation in sports becomes outside of of their God-honoring context. And when they do that, it becomes destructive. And we could use a thousand other examples, right? I mean, like, if you take this piece of wisdom, it can be universally applied. Take something that is a good gift from God. That's a lot. Now move it outside of its God-honoring context, it's destructive. There is endless application to this, right? And so the question becomes, how are we to navigate a world that is so filled with God's good gifts that are or can be misused and then, uh, or misrepresented in so many ways and then ultimately become destructive. How in the world are we to navigate that world? I mean, this sounds like pretty hopeless, right? The world is filled with God's good gifts as long as you use them correctly. Ha <laughs> ha. Good luck. Have a nice day. I think this proverb offers us not only wisdom in understanding this truth, but I think it also offers us wisdom in learning how to navigate a world that is filled with God's good gifts that we can also begin to use them in ways that are honoring to God. Um, look at verse 25. Verse 25 of Proverbs chapter seven, after this whole discourse, this, this unbelievably detailed Word, picture, and story of a young man who was caught up into uh, the lure of the wayward woman uh, and then was led ultimately to destruction. Look at verse 25. Because verse 24 is where the story ends and then wisdom turns once again and is talking to the son. Verse 24, now then, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to what I say. Verse 25, do not let your heart churn to her ways, Or stray into her paths. You see, the first way that we are to navigate a world that is full of God's gifts that can be misused and then become destructive is to follow the advice of the parent here, the parent wisdom, who says, Don't let your heart churn her way. Well, that's great. Okay, do my best and do that. Awesome. Well, here's some 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 handles on how to get a hold of that. The heart is used to describe the center of who we are. And so the the parent is essentially saying, at the core of who you are, don't allow that to be churned or oriented in, in her way. And so he's talking about the orientation of the heart. But let me say this to you. The heart's gaze is fixed on a person's desires. So the core of who we are, is oriented or gazes upon that which we desire. Our desires are shaped and formed by our habits. Are you with me? So the core of who we are, our heart, is churns its gaze upon our desires, but our desires are formed and shaped by our habits. In other words, The little tiny decisions that you make every single day are orienting your heart in a particular direction. Your choice to come to church today, when it's nice and sunny and the mountains are calling, right? Your choice to come to church today is a good choice because today your heart has been oriented toward the ways of God. And so, in other words, this—in other words—it it comes to this: the best advice in the world, the truest wisdom that is offered, is absolutely useless against strong temptation, unless, unless that advice and that wisdom is translated into habits. Let me say that again. The best advice in the world or the truest wisdom that is offered is useless against strong temptation unless that advice and that wisdom is converted or transformed into habits. And so we must learn to take what is the good and godly wisdom that is being offered to me and then how do I translate that into a habit in my life? Because my habit forms my desires and my my heart gazes upon my desires. And so the way to not let your heart uh, turn her way or stray into her paths is to form habits in your life that shape your desire to be in the ways of God instead of the ways of destruction. And so I say all of that to say perhaps the most cliche thing that Christians have ever said, and that is, do your devotions. I used to think that was so old school, you know, I used to think that was like for, for undeveloped Christians who have not progressed to my level of Christianity. Because after all, I am a professional Christian. Right. Cue the role of eyes, right? But I'm, I'm serious when I say that I used, to, I used to hear people talk about dedicated times of prayer and Bible reading um, and fasting, and then like these spiritual disciplines. And I would just kind of say, you know what? I just pray without ceasing. I'm just always praying. Man, I don't need that morning time alone because I'm just, I'm just me. I got a like back in the day, I would have said, I got a DSL connection to God, you know? <laughs> back in the day, it would have been like, I got a dial-up connection with God. <laughs> right? I'm just dialing up God. Uh, but, but here's what I've come to learn. What I've come to learn is that participating in habits that connect me to God actually shape my desires. That, that the thousand little choices I make every single day are in some way impacting the orientation of my heart and i wonder that if this young man you'll you'll notice that early on in the story it says that there is a young fool which means what if you if you understand the the dichotomy that's going on in proverbs it's always Uh, comparing wisdom and folly, the way of wisdom and the way of the fool. And so early on in the passage it says, here along comes a young fool. It means that he wasn't walking in the ways of wisdom. And the only way to walk in the ways of wisdom, and the only way to shape the orientation of our heart, and the only way to shape our desires, is to have habits that honor God. Every single day, a thousand choices orienting our heart to God. And I wonder if it had said, how the story would be different if it had said, along came a young man who was full of wisdom and then here comes this woman and she tells him oh i've made my bed with myrrh and cinnamon why don't you come in and let's enjoy love all night what he would do differently i'll bet he would know right off the bat that even though it's tempting right here in the moment it's ultimately destructive but it says along came a fool And so I want to speak to you today about the habits that you form and how those habits impact us for our daily life. Because in my own life, every year I make goals and at the end of every year I look back and I'm like, man, there's a lot of goals I didn't meet. How discouraging is that? And and I have this, this thing inside of me ever since I was young that it's like, if I'm not going to be awesome at something, I don't want to do it. And so it's like, well, I'm a dad, so I want to be an awesome dad. And I'm a, I'm a husband, so I want to be the most amazing husband. And I'm a pastor, so I want to be the most amazing pastor. But I also have this thing in me that allows me to see the barriers that are keeping me from all of those things. And I have this innate ability to see all the ways in which I fall short. Is there anybody with me? Come on, don't leave me up here alone, right? That's right. And so I kind of look and I'm like, I, I feel on one hand, Called to all of these amazing things and yet held back by my own, by my own disability, right? By my own limitations. And, and, and today, or not today, but this year, at the beginning of this year, the Lord began to speak to me and said, instead of making really specific goals that are measurable and attached to a timeline like every good goal writer would tell you to write, I want you to, I want you to begin forming some discipline in your life. And that discipline will help you get to the place that I've called you to be But guess what? You can't do it overnight. You can't go from being Andy today to Andy full of God's potential. You can't just wake up one morning and that becomes, and and that's the fact. You've gotta develop some habits and some disciplines in your life that will help get you there. And so the Lord said, I don't want you to set goals. I want you to identify two areas of your life to begin forming discipline. I'm gonna use that as the building blocks to lead you to where I wanna take you. And those two areas where you need to have an exercise habit in your life. I went to the doctor and I said, Doc, I think I'm getting fat and it might be this disease that I've got. Uh, And and I'm I'm pretty sure I just want to blame it on that. And he goes, (laughs) he laughed at me. Um, And he said, you know, I've had so many 30-year-old dudes come into my office and tell me the same thing. Trust me, it's not your disease. It's the fact that you're 30 and you have two kids and you're like, oh, we shouldn't let those chicken nuggets go to waste. You know, and so you're like, you're just like, oh, are you going to eat all those chicken nuggets? No. Okay. What about the fries? Oh, okay. You want to turn in the toy for an ice cream? Can I have some? You know, it's just like, and then like Halloween, great time to teach your kids about tithe because 10% goes to the father. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and so he just told me, listen to me. It's not this thing that you struggle with health wise. It's just the fact that you're 30. And if you put on five pounds every year, then guess what? 30 years from now, you're not going to like the result. That's a long story to tell you. One area of my life was I, wanted, I had to get a hold of this exercise habit. The second, the second area of my life that I wanted to form discipline was prayer. And he said, you know what? I just I want you very consistently to form a habit of prayer. Because Prayer is not so much about getting God to do what you think God ought to do, but about being properly formed. And so if I want my heart to be shaped, if I want my desires to be transformed by God, I've got to spend some time sitting at his feet. I've got to spend some time in prayer. And so God began to speak to me about habits. I think there are some other habits that I just want to quickly mention that I think are really beneficial. I think gathering with the community in worship is an essential part of shaping your desires. And I'm not saying you can't ever miss church. I'm saying is there a regular pattern of gathering with the community, that it is a priority in your life? Um, coming to the table for communion is, is a tremendous habit to have, which is why we do it every single week. Every single week we gather around the Lord's table because we feel like it is not just about bread and juice. That somehow, as we come to the table, remembering Christ's death on our behalf, our our hearts are being shaped and oriented toward the ways of God. Establishing a rhythm of prayer and reading. And a big one for our culture is a habit of Sabbath. A habit of Sabbath. Uh, I heard very recently someone talk about Sabbath in this way. They said that, that, uh, the, that the, the, what God is up to in the world is making all things new, right? You've heard me say that over and over and again from the pulpit. And so for six days, we participate with what God is doing. We are active participants in making all things new. And then on day seven, we rest so that God can make us new. And if we don't, if we don't take that rest, if we don't, if we don't ever say, God, I'm just gonna, oh, oh, I'm gonna offer things to you, I'm gonna let go, I'm gonna rest, and I'm gonna allow you just to, to do something in me, then what will happen is, will. We'll, n- well, doing God's work, is brought outside of its God honoring context, and then it can be destructive. That even a rejection of Sabbath ministry can be destructive, and so there are habits that shape us and form us. Because again, I want you to understand this: the heart, our heart's gaze, the core of who we are, gazes upon our desires, and our desires are formed and shaped by our habits. Now, the second thing, look at verse 26 and 27, the the second sort of ammunition for living in this world where so many things can can be destructive. Uh, He says this, many are the victims that she has brought down. Her her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. Again, what I want to say to you is that these habits uh, of spiritual formation not only order our desires, but they also give you discernment. That as you participate in these habits of spiritual formation, your desires are being properly ordered and you are being given discernment from God. So the parent tells the son, and remember the parent is wisdom personified. So, the, the, so wisdom says many are the victims that she has brought down. Her house is a highway to the grave. Let me say this, wisdom is able to see past the surface to what is really going on. Wisdom is able to see past the surface to what is really going on. Because this woman approaches this young man uh, with with sweet talk, with an invitation to love, with all sort of the right things. And, And imagine this. Imagine if the young man was single and praying for a spouse. And along comes this woman and says, I have been looking for you. Let's, let's go on into this, 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 this ecstasy of love. He might be tempted to say, oh, the one I've been waiting for. But wisdom is the ability to see past whatever is going on on the surface to see the truth of the situation. And so wisdom says, despite her talk, and her invitation to love. Wisdom knows that she brings destruction. And I would just say that as the people of God, we need to learn to see past the shiny exterior and look to the inside to determine what, uh, if, if something is really good. Uh, there's just this point of discernment that we need to begin to, to capture, to see past just the immediate, past the surface, and really understand what's going on. And I think this is true in any kind of realm. Uh, media comes at us 100, 100 miles an hour. Uh, I think the, if, if we are to be people of the truth, I think we have to be truth seekers, right? We ought to see past the surface of whatever is going on and begin to try to really understand it. And I just think this. The point of discernment is this. If I participate uh, in this thing, in this way, is it good or destructive? Now, that's very, very broad, but intentionally so. Uh, I want to send you home with this point of discernment. If I participate in this thing, whatever it is, and if I participate it in this way, then is that good or is that destructive? And in fact, I would just encourage some of you to go home and begin asking that question. This is something I participate in. I do it in this way. Is that good or is it destructive? Is there something else that I need to be doing? Is there something that I need to not be doing? Uh, that's what wisdom is, the ability to see past the surface to what is really going on. Because remember, reading Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, you might be tempted to say sex is bad. And that's not the case. It's just what, what he's teaching us about is, is sex outside of its proper context. And that's when it becomes destructive. So we can't just say, our, our point of discernment cannot just be, uh, is, it, is it good or is it bad? It's, it's gotta be, is it, if I participate in it, and if I participate in this way, then is it good or is it bad? Does that make sense? And that's what I want to leave you with, um, is just that point of discernment. Uh, and I wanna challenge you to, to determine if there's anything in your life that is outside of its God-honoring context. Is there anything in your life that you are practicing or participating in that is outside of its God-honoring context? And then how do you begin to make adjustments so that you are honoring God in all things?